Hi, this is Patty Lapone. This is Allison Janney. This is Matt Balmer. This is Donna Murphy. This is Nia Vardalis. This is Jesse Tyler Ferguson. This is Beanie Feldstein. I'm Octavia Spencer. This is Ben Platt, and you're listening to Little Known Facts with my favorite person on the planet, Alana Levine. A-OK. Welcome to Little Known Facts, a podcast where you will hear unfiltered, raw, honest, and uniquely funny interviews with artists you love as they talk about the art they love to make. I'm your host, Ilana Levine. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Hey, I heard you needed inspiration. He's a lot of end friends with some revelations. Little known back to the day. Hey everyone, new episodes of Little Known Facts drop every Monday and you can find them on your favorite podcast provider. Also, if you go to the website, littleknownfactspodcast.com, you'll find behind-the-scenes photos, videos, and interviews, and lots more on the gallery page. And if you are loving these intimate, candid conversations with all the artists who come on the show, please head over to the contributions page. I depend on these donations to continue to bring you these interviews every week. So if you love the show, please donate. Hey, everyone. I'm recording this while walking down a street in Brooklyn, New York, on a hot summer night. And I am just so thrilled that I can share part two of my conversation with the extraordinary designer, David Korins. In this episode, we talk about Dear Evan Hansen and Hamilton in great depth and how those sets came to be and how he found himself in the room where it happens with the cabinet that makes up the creative team of Hamilton. And it is not lost on David at how fortunate he is to be a part of what is the Hamilton legacy. And it is not lost on me how fortunate I am to have this in-depth, incredible conversation with this truly extraordinary person and designer. So enjoy part two of David Corrin's. When I got to Williamstown, I had no idea. As I said, I didn't really know anything about scenography. There were these two books, I know I said it, books, because no one reads them anymore, that were called American Set Design 1 and American Set Design 2. Those are good titles. I mean, you know what? What a cliffhanger. They nailed it, because guess what it was about? (laughs) and in the first uh, book were, you know, what I, for when I was coming up, kind of the old guard. It was Ming Jolie, it was Ralph Funicello, it was Tony Walton. It was a kind of group of grandmasters. And there were some sketches. There were some interviews with these gentlemen and a couple of ladies. 
there were no other real resources. There wasn't Google. So you sort of were like, wow, here's a book of 12 profiles mm -hmm. in which they talked about some seminal productions that they worked on, some collaborators, some process stuff. And you could see some people have models, some, have, some were beautiful artisans, some could really draw, some could paint. Um, you had some production shots. And that was pretty interesting. I had never seen those books, and I studied those books. And then American Set Design 2 came mm -hmm. out, and it was a... The sequel. Uh, yeah, the sequel. And it was like a whole group of 12 younger people. Who were some John of those John Napier, people? who did, you know, all the big kind of British musicals, Cats, and um, John Lee Beatty. There was a group of, like, people who are still now, I don't know, maybe they're, like, in their 70s. Like Santo like, Laquasto, that generation. Was, for sure. Yeah. And Santo was one of them in the book. Yeah. And, it, and, and now it's like, oh, some of those guys show up at Williamstown Theater Festival. So mm -hmm. I'm reading the book, and then, you know, and I actually have a, I have someone who I remember assisting one of them, and I said, I got to go. I have to go. I have to go. I'm like, I have to go talk to a Broadway set designer. Yeah. You know, it's like, yeah. you know, it, it was a big deal. These people were in a book and I could see their work and they had like real gravitas. Mm -hmm. So then there was the guard beneath them, which were the Neil Patels, the Alan Moyers, the Derek McLeans, who were really, truly like, you know, in their 40s and getting it done. Like, you know, six or seven years out of grad school when I was an intern, you know, working all over the country and the world doing the stuff and Broadway productions. And... You know, we would think, oh gosh, if they did an American Set Design three, here are the yeah, you know the twelve next volume now, yeah. and so I learned a lot just about process, but I learned a lot also like at the coffee shop with these guys um, and these women who I would assist um, through Williamstown, and I wound up assisting most of them. Um, Is that I, how you first started professionally? Well, I, as Derek McLean would say, I wasn't a great assistant. Okay. I wasn't a great studio assistant, meaning my skill set of drafting and building models wasn't amazing. But I was a really, really, really great in the theater assistant because I could get the shows up. And I could talk to the scene shops and I could talk to the painters and I could like really tr uh, be a trusted deputy to make sure work calls and things got done. Right. And to communicate the designer's totally. desires. Yeah. And and um, so I did start assisting and Jim Noon, who did Jekyll and Hyde and many other shows, was a person who I had assisted several years at Williamstown and had really proven that I could come through in a crisis. Mm -hmm. He said, when I finally moved to New York, you know, will you come work in my studio? And I think he gave me 500 bucks a week. And the first thing I did was assemble by hand, not screw gun, I'm talking manual screwdriver, all of his office furniture. And it was like an Indian summer. It was so hot. <laughs> and uh, I think it was Office Depot, but it was a. It was but not. But the fun. other thing that yeah. I did was I assisted him on um, Fully Committed, the original production. Uh, and he knew I could paint and he knew I could build. And he said, uh, will you do the paint elevations based on this Francis Bacon painting? And I did. And then he asked me to, like, paint the show, which was totally not something I thought I would do. And Nikki Martin uh, was the director and became a dear friend and longtime collaborator. He came up through Williamstown as well. Yeah. And he, Nikki also knew I could put shows up. And Nikki hired me frequently mm -hmm. and gave me many of my first big jobs. And, uh, you know, the thing about working with Jim was... At the end of every day, even though I had a full-time job, he would say to me, you want to come in tomorrow? You know, like, it, he would open up the door for me to leave. Because there's always more furniture to put Well, together. you know, he... That's so sweet, though. What, what 
It was what sweet. Is that? You like, know what? what? A, you know what? I think it was. I think he respected the fact that he thought I was going to be a designer. And um, it's funny. He had a full time lead associate who went to NYU, got a master's, and was like a hotshot. And it was just the two of us. And I remember I was like twenty nothing years old, and Jim left the studio, and I said to this guy, "So when are you going to open your own studio?" And he looked at me. I was a child. Mm-hmm. He looked at me and was like, "How dare you? I have a terminal degree. I'm one of the best people that you know that does what we do in this industry, and like this is a self actualizing. I don't need to go." And I. I didn't. I didn't know because I thought, oh, what you do is you're an assistant, then you're an associate, then you're a designer, steps. and then you, yeah. I had no idea. And in that moment, I was like, oh my god, Jim is only as good as this guy and I are. Right. And that was a profound lesson to learn. And Jim also, in every single meeting, would say, would introduce me as, "This is David Corrins. He's a young designer that I work with. Really? Not nice. here's my assistant. Yeah. And I try and do the same thing." Um, I really took that with me. And as I built my studio one person at a time and one show at a time, I've thought a lot about that because I have an associate who has been with me for 21 years as of last Monday. And um, I couldn't do what I do without these guys. I mean, no chance. How big a team do you have at this point? I think we're now, you know, today we might be 20. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're not all designers. Some of us are um, crafts people, illustrators, model makers and fabricators, some administrative folks, some project managers, some associates. Well, I'm going to fast forward because the bio I read and listeners should know, David was basically hiding under the table, trying not to listen. He was very shy and embarrassed about hearing his credits, which is incredibly charming. I'm getting shy and embarrassed just talking just about Just talking me about being the reading of the bio. <laughs> you know, the, you have a tremendous Broadway resume at this point, and then you have like a tremendous life resume of projects that don't involve the theater at all. Yeah. And you have a studio, yeah. which sounds like it started about 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. I want to talk about sort of how this passion rippled and kind of created, you know, these circles that got larger and larger and more encompassing of all sorts of things. I have two things that I find really incredible to me, having seen almost everything that you've designed, Wow! which is to say that I cannot point to, and I think this is remarkable when we talk about vocabulary or your language of design. You know, Dear Evan Hansen takes place basically in 2017, Mm -hmm. and Hamilton takes place in 1776 and other years, and we time travel a little bit in both those plays Mm -hmm. over time. That's an extraordinary thing for you, you know, as a, you don't seem schizophrenic, to live in such different time periods where, you know, one is like as you said, wood and steel and beams, and the other is all technology and beautiful, you know, kind of intense lighting. And I mean, it's so crazy to me that both of those things happened at the same time and both came out of you. And that Michael Greif and Tommy Kale, who were working in such different worlds, both wanted you, right? Like that your reputation that precedes you is whatever it is, he will tell your story. I've well, heard that's you... nice. That made my hair well, stand up because well, that's actually a be- like beautiful. I mean, that's what that's sort of the brass ring, right? That yes, you want that. Yes, as opposed to okay, it's a high tech show, right? So we're going to get David Corns because he does like this really cool modern stuff, or like oh, if you want something that takes you back in time, that's amazing. Thank you. And that's not true for everyone, right? 
And Kanye West calls you too, and so does Mariah Carey, and, and so do operas. Right. So there's a handful of people who kind of live in all those worlds at the same time. And I don't know if there's like a way to be concise about how that journey happened, but how did that journey happen? Well, I think that people think with um, Hamilton, oh, now that you did Hamilton, you're doing all sorts of other stuff. And the truth is... I've been doing other stuff since the very beginning. Yeah. I've been doing furniture design and interior design okay. and all sorts of things. And I've had no damn business doing any of those things for as long as I've been doing them. I had no business doing a production design for a feature film, you know, two years. Before into, you had done a film. I didn't even yeah. know what the difference between an art director and a production designer was. I learned what it was, but I had right. no idea what the difference was when I got hired to do it. Um, do you know so, what a Foley artist is? Of course. Famously. <laughs> 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 um, well, anyway, no, I never heard of it. What do you mean? Uh, that better not be an outtake. We both were fired. We uh, both got fired from life in that moment. They were uh, with us, and then yeah. they were like, what? either that. I mean, good thing, you know, that would be a meme, yeah. right? Except yeah. there's no such thing as an audio meme. There is now, my friend. It's the name of my second album, it. Audio right. Meme. It's my memoir. Um, it's a maze balls. Oh God! All right, go on. It's so a maze balls. Yes. That's mine. Um, <laughs> So, you know, I've been doing all these things for a really long time. And I think what happened was if you can think about things holistically and you're a hardworking collaborator and you really do try and serve the thing, uh, the, whatever the piece is, the best possible way. First of all, Hamilton and Dear Evan Hansen shouldn't look alike, right? That's right. sort of like the, the, the point. I would agree if, with that. I mean, and listen, Frank Gehry, who's an absolute genius, when you see a Frank Gehry building, you know it's a Frank Gehry That's building. Right. And I think when you hire him, you hire him because you want a Frank Gehry and building. And I am hiring him. God bless you. He's going to do this podcast <laughs> Me <studio>. too. <laughs> Careful of those panels. Careful of the um, panels that fall so, so I think that, you know, they should look differently. And I feel honored that people would come to me and think, oh, he's got the capability to see that and know that and then, you know, reach into your brain or my brain and come up with something that feels representative of the world of the show. You know, I realized I actually weirdly had an aha moment when I was 20 years old driving a car through a recently rained on parking lot and I hit a puddle and the puddle splashed up crazy water under the car. And in that moment, I thought everything in the world needs to be designed, including the drainage in this parking lot. And if you, once you, you can't unring that bell once you kind of hear it. Right. And I thought, huh, I wonder if I could apply my skills to all sorts of things, mm -hmm. not just this theatrical design path. And if you think about it, you have to sensitively think about what are these stories really trying to tell? That's what I do. Like, literally, it's just that simple. I, I try and read the thing, and I try and put on my audience barometer. Like, is the thing that we think that we're telling actually the thing that the audience is hearing and seeing and experiencing? And now the crazy thing is the world has changed, which is that it used to be that theater was performing A, performing B for C. Right? Okay. That's what it is. Definition. A, performing B for C. I want to know what you mean by that. Well, A... Let's just say, in the traditional sense, actors performing B, which is the script or the show, okay. for C, the audience. Okay, thank you. If you break it down like that, that is um, a restaurant. That is, you know... Any experience every, you can think of. Literally, yeah. we're having it right now. Yeah. And so, and I saw that really early on. Um, I started making work in college that was, you know, breaking the fourth wall and mm -hmm. blurring the lines between performers and, and the audience. 
And I went through this entire experience. Then at the end of it, my professor gave me a book about Richard Schechner's like, experiences and happenings and pop-ups in the 60s. It was like, just so you know, you didn't invent it, but I want you to be aware that that was amazing how you found it uh-huh. yourself and you thought you invented it. Uh-huh. And the truth is, now the thing about the world changing is advertising is no longer really effective in the way that if you get the right 12 people tweeting about something, they could sell more products than a 30-second spot on right. television. And also brands and intellectual properties and people who have tell stories to tell who used to sort of tell plastic trade showy, ver- showy versions of their – Right, in their booth. Now they're doing it through story. So theater, A, performing B for C, is literally everywhere. The Super Bowl used to be a football game. Then it was the commercials mm-hmm. and tweeting about it. Then it was the halftime show. And now if you go to the arena, there are like – 7,000 experiences, throw like a quarterback, catch like a wide receiver, you know, and the whole world is becoming immersed. You know, people want to say, oh, Sleep No More made immersive theater. Right. Totally not true, right? Immersive theater is like, go walk down the sidewalk in New York City. Right, or go to New Orleans for two seconds. Forget it. I mean, God. And so- Not uh, to diminish Sleep No More's impact. Not at all. But, you know, I think it was like many people's first time. And so Mm -hmm. they remember it so interestingly and phenomenally. But the truth is it's been happening for years and years and years. And so I just think about telling stories like that as completely and as holistically as possible. And I have a good sense of what everyone's task is, you know, what the director, the pressures on the director are Uh and what their job is. And oftentimes I act as a- co-conceiver and then I back away and I make the space and then I come back in later in the process and say like here are three thoughts and I've been doing it for such a long time that I think the people who are interested in my contribution being that way have just kept calling me. Um, Because you're a good collaborator for them. It's it's really the only game in town that we do. I mean everyone, anyone can make a space but I think when you're, I mean Tommy Kale said it uh, about like you this foxhole mentality and who you want in the foxhole with right. you, this creative and artistic foxhole. And I think that I try my best to be a good soldier. And sometimes that means, you know, covering the other person. And sometimes that means digging the hole deeper. Sure. And sometimes that means calling for backup. And sometimes that means giving thoughts. And I used to send notes after a tech rehearsal. Here are my thoughts. Please take none of them. Please take all of them. I don't care. And they were Directing notes, choreography notes, writing notes, you know, costumes. So you were writing about the whole, not just your department, as well, it were. If you're going to sit in tech for and many, think, many days, you know, yeah. But how was that received? Once it was by a uh, once it was received. <laughs> let me say it again. It was, One time it, it was, was received, like literally. How fucking dare you? Mm-hmm. How dare you? Do you was, want to say who that was? I don't. Little known fact. The person is currently nominated for a Tony mm-hmm. for their work in. No, um, the, it's true. The uh, Tony nomination is true, but we're not going to. But fans can try to guess and they can win something. No, uh, no, no. And we're not going there. But it was a how dare you. And mm-hmm. at other times it was, oh, could you keep doing that. That's really helpful. That, uh, or, and also, and sometimes it was, I'm so in deep, I appreciate it, maybe I'll look at it, maybe I won't. Yeah. That's why I would always preface, like, take it or leave it. Like, yeah. I'm just doing this because I'm sitting here. So can I ask you just to, because you're a confident, competitive person, <laughs> which is not, no one should feel shame in being confident or competitive. When it wasn't received well, did you stay up all night feeling terrible 
or were you okay? A friend is asking. I um, I don't really stay up all night. So you do not worry about. But being I was light. not okay. You were not way. okay. So you I, slept. But no, no, you didn't it feel hurt good. me because here was a person who hired me. You know, someone asked me yesterday about like what's it like to work with Kanye West, that whole thing, and you know, do you get starstruck or do you? And I feel like if a person hires me to do a job. Mm-hmm. They trust me. They want to know my opinion because they could get anyone to do the job. And so I always just go in and I treat whether they are my exact peers, age and otherwise, or they're not. um, I treat everyone as an equal collaborator Mm -hmm. and they they called me so they must want this. They can always undo that relationship. But if you're going to ask, here I am. So I felt hurt in that moment because... I was like, I said to you, you don't have to even read this yeah, email. Yeah, the preface you know? was pretty clear. And so to do, give me the how fucking dare you was right. deep. Yeah. It was like, ugh, I guess we know where I stand there. There we go. Yeah. You had worked with Michael before, dear Evan Hansen? Had you guys worked together either in Williamstown days um, or on... Yes, I, okay. I had... I, you know, it's funny. I had only designed one other show for him. He had come to me a few times and we couldn't work out the schedule, but right. I worked on... I actually was assistant on many shows that he had directed, so we sort of knew each other. Okay. Do you remember your very first conversation with him about Dear Evan Hansen and who else was present at the first meeting my very first conversation with him about the show, because actually my first conversation about the show was with the producer, okay. which was interesting. Um, which one? Uh, Stacey Mindich. Okay. And she called me and said, I've been championing this musical. I want you to do it. We're getting Michael. And um, a lot of the play takes place in a youthful world of social media. And I think that you have an interesting take on it. Will you come to this reading? And then I spoke to Michael and Michael just said, I'm thrilled that you're doing it. I can't wait to have a conversation. Let's not have any conversations until we do uh, this reading. And so we sort of, that was my first conversation, but that's not a real conversation. Right. But like, let's table the creative conversation till after the reading. So I went to the reading and actually this Almost never happens. Um, I went to the reading and I folded up an eight and a half by 11 piece of paper into sixteenths, like fold, 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 fold. And you I made s- a fortune cookie. I made a fortune cookie. L O V E. And then I and then I sat there and sketched sixteen different thumbnail sketches of just like moments in the show and thoughts that I was having, sort of like a just an artist response to the thing. Remember me? A, I can't draw, and B, I wasn't even looking at the piece of paper, so it's right. not so good. Right. And that was like, let's say, a Thursday. Um, we, Michael and I were going to meet on the following Tuesday. On Tuesday, I opened up the piece of paper and I said, here, I mean, and these sketches are probably, I don't know, two inches by a half inch. Um, and I said, here are, uh, 16 different things. And he put his finger on one of them and said, I like that one. We should do that. And it is a sketch that is of a circle with a little bed on top of it, like a little tectonic plate with a bed, and about seven or eight rectangles and squares, like a wind chime over this bed. And it was this idea of a floating tectonic plate of warmth in this technological sea of a landscape. And um, he was like that. And what's weird about that is that's what the show is. Mm-hmm. And we that was literally our due north. And we sort of said, okay, well, do we need other lily pads yeah do we need other stuff like how many screens are there and that was strange because it's completely unlike the process of hamilton or basically every other show that i've ever done where you never start with like here's a thing let's do it but that was really amazing and that michael 
either loved it so much or trusted me so much or a combination, but we just did that. And he put his finger on that piece of paper and then we started. And that's day one. That was day one. And that was day one. And that and, sweet little bed is the centerpiece of that show. I mean, it's, re- and uh, you know, part of the charm is that the drawing is terrible. Yeah. But when you look at it, it literally, I mean, that sketch, we literally manifested that into reality. And now that's the show, um, basically. And wow, you know, that also, sometimes you don't have to suffer. Mm-hmm. You know, by the way, I have many collaborators who make you suffer every, even if you say it's this perfect sketch. Right. Um, and then you have to basically d- prove that every other idea in the entire world is not going to work in order to come back to that sketch. What was brilliant about that process was he approved it, he liked it, and we started, we immediately could move into model form, other renderings, other sketches, and, and we sort of went straight down the road towards right. it. Right. To that remarkable to that set, thing. Yeah. which also, you know, I feel like many people, whether they have the privilege of seeing the show in person or at this time, YouTube can kind of present parts mm-hmm. of it or bad fan films of it. You know, the last moment, too. When did you know what the last stage picture would be? Well... Because it's so profound. Yeah. I've always been... Um, it was an early lesson that I learned... I, I have like seven big ideas about design, and okay. one of them is a revelation of space. Uh-huh. Um, and in fact, I did a not good TEDx Broadway talk about um, about it, and I called it revelation of space. Can I wor- disagree with you? Having watched it, I, I don't think it's not good at all. I thought I've walked around thinking about my life and design constantly since I watch that, oh. how how I, as a non-designer, am actually the designer of my life. And right. I thought what you said in that TED Talk, and maybe you're, you know, it's hard for us to watch ourselves, I thought it was profound. So I'm going to disagree well, with you. Well, thank you for that. I you're mean, I, listen, about the TED Talk, I actually think the kernels of the idea are really interesting. Mm-hmm. I think what I do is a tactical problem. I say, I'm going to do three things, and then I do three other things, mm-hmm. and I go back, isn't that cool? Yeah. And so... The really smart people who have given me notes, not that I'm saying you're not smart, are like, you should fix that, and then you could really have something here. I am not drinking smart water right now, which is why. But I'm talking about how I respond to something, which is the feeling of the thing, not being right or point. You know, like that's a different conversation. Everything can be made better. Totally. You're right. You're right. But the the takeaway from that is beautiful and poetic. Well, and thank I you. will not let you disagree with that. Thank now you. go on. How did we get on the TED talk? <laughs> because, because I said that and then what happened? Well, you were talking about revelation. <gasps> oh right. Which you touched so the on revelation in your of TED space. Talk. Yeah. Right. So I knew that this world was going to be inky blackness, right? And that all of these little pockets of life were gonna kind of expand and contract from within the inky darkness of the show. Of Evan Hansen. Of Evan Hansen. Yeah. And and the thing is, all of those environments are very man-made. And the whole show is about, you know, pushing out into the world, potentially, this idea of an organic orchard. And so I just knew that if we could somehow pierce through the darkness and deliver, because that show is emotionally, uh, you know... So beautiful, so impactful, has so many emotional on-ramps for people. And also, you need to not kill people and walk out feeling horrible about themselves so they can really reflect on the thing that they just experienced. And so I thought to deliver a moment of hope, um, if we could pierce through that darkness with something organic, uh, it would be pretty powerful. And so 
again, everyone's a sucker for revelation of space. If you mm-hmm. define a world as immovable and then at the end you move it. Um, so we just simply open up the back wall and we deliver this orchard, which are, you know, real plants. Mm-hmm. And when they show up, I mean, I sometimes you think you can feel the air in the theater get cold when, because of like the airflow and you just, you feel like you're outside because you see a blue sky and some clouds and trees. And after seeing only rectilinear shapes and only dark man-made digital imagery for two and a half hours, it changes you. Literally, you just feel differently. And so I knew that it would be so great to like, also the, the play is well made in that we cut to a year later. Yeah. And so um, it's quite a palate cleanser, and then it's very um, transporting, I think. And it was the it was an invitation to be able to give people a moment of contemplation, to build it in for them during the show, yeah, and then allow them to walk out into the uh, into the world, thinking, "Oh, right now I can understand and process what I just saw." Because I think if it was unending darkness we wouldn't have had that success. And to Stacy's credit, the producer's credit, we took a very circuitous route to Broadway and now on a national tour. We started in D.C. and she saw The Orchard and fell in love with it. And when we went to Second Stage, which is a tiny postage stamp footprint, she said, I do not care what it takes. We have to get that orchard. You know, because there's a whole lot of like, well, we could like slide things on or we could have a projection. And she was like, you have to deliver that. That was the piece de resistance. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and, you know, that and was beautiful. And on the tour beautiful. now is that, are the live plants and that beautiful totally in. reveal always. I mean, and that's one of those things like that is interesting um, because now I think it's baked into the DNA of the show. Mm-hmm. And I would, I'm sure, getting back to what we were talking about earlier, unless it gets cut, uh, um, you know, people will say, well, how could you do Dear and Hansen without an orchard at the end? Right. And in fact, there's a million ways you could do it without an orchard, but not our production. Right. Not our production. And so I know you'd work with Tommy before, Tommy Kale. You were in the foxhole with him earlier on yes. other shows. There's a kind of mythology about Tommy and Alex Lackmore and Lin-Manuel Romero. Lin Manuel Miranda. I it, I hadn't heard the name until I researched you, so it's so hard for me to say. <laughs> I know. It. Is it Lin Manuel Miranda? We call him L M M. Yes, no, we we on Twitter. Yeah. Did you feel like that was a fraternity that was hard to break into, not creatively, but like there's this triumvirate, and where do I fit in in that bromance? Well, and... it's not a, only a triumvirate; it's really a a a quad. It's a quad box. <laughs> <laughs> that I invented. Okay. Andy Blankenbuehler is right, the one that course, you missed, right? So course. it's Alex, Andy, Lynn, and Tommy. Yes, the are, choreographer. You know, and they, That's because I can't say Blankenbuehler. It's too They hard. lovingly call themselves the cabinet. And also they have moments when they go through notes in a process in which they call themselves like Voltron. If you remember that pop culture reference where like all those robots came together to make one super robot. And that is true because they are in a, a beautiful collaborative uh, group. So I felt that very very palpably Mm -hmm. because um, they did In the Heights together. Right. And they were- They'd already given birth. Friends. They had given birth to, you know, a fancy baby. Yeah. And I was busy um, midwifing Mm -hmm. across town doing a show called Passing Strange. And I- An extraordinary show. And I loved that show and I would not change that experience for anything except, uh, or period- and I, we would go back and forth and see each other. And I remember going to an early preview when, when In Heights was off Broadway and then I saw it on Broadway. And and I felt 
like a tiny pang of like my friends get to all work together mm-hmm. and I was you know like the solo guy like the new guy over at yeah, Passing Strange a little lonely over there and you know then I was very happy and overjoyed that I was asked to collaborate with them individually and combinations of the Voltron many over many different years. times yeah. you know we Andy and Alex and Tommy and I worked on The Wiz and then Alex and Andy and Lynn and I worked on Bring It On and like we we worked on many many shows and so at some point in the process, I said to Tommy, you know, when it comes time to find a design team for Hamilton, I'd like to throw my hat into the ring. When that was still being readings up at New York Stage and Film yeah. and workshops yeah. and all that. And, yeah. and, and like the and the truth is, I felt a little bit like, is it weird for me to ask that? Like, right. I don't really go and solicit work because I kind of feel like if they want me, they know how to they know where I live. Um, but in that case, I was like, these guys are my friends and also my frequent collaborators. And I should just go ahead and ask. Right. You know, at least to be considered or, you know, because I have a, I, like, I'm a big boy. Someone could say, you know what, that job is taken. And I could say, shame. Okay. okay. Yeah. Um, and it had nothing to do with what the the supposed success or the theoretical success of the show would have because no one could have anticipated this. When you wanted to throw your your fedora into the ring, yep. had you seen a reading or a workshop or had you just heard some songs or did you just hear them talking about I it? I think the first time uh, I actually asked Tommy about it, and I think I only asked him once, mm-hmm. we were... Um, Tommy, I will only ask you once. Yeah. <laughs> We were at New York Stage and Film, and they were doing... In front um, of the Jocelyn dorms. We were, like, in the quad, Uh literally. Uh And um, I said, what are you doing? He said, we're workshopping. I can't remember which act at the time, because I actually think I saw him at at the the summer when they did Act 1 and Act 2. And just said, like, uh, you know, when this thing gets put together to become a show... Call me. Yeah, call me. Yeah. Will you call me? Yeah. And then when they uh, they did put it together, I got a phone call from the public theater, and they said, Tommy wants to interview you. And I had a longstanding relationship with the public. I'd done many shows, and I had done uh, many was shows. Jenny, no, Jenny Gerson wasn't there anymore, but she had been She Was she there? She, maybe she had just gotten out of there. And then Oscar and was Oscar, obviously and, the guy. And, and, you know, I had done Here Lies Love, and I had done... Um, uh, Jack Goes Boating, and I had done David Henry Wong's play, Yellow Face, and I did met in Christopher Durang's play, um, Why Torture's Wrong, The People That Love Them, and I'd done many, many shows with the public. So I was kind of like, Oscar, this is going to be so exciting to interview. And then I called Andy, and I said, you know, anything you can tell me about the show? And I got given the script and the music, and I worked really hard. I mean, yeah. I worked really, really hard to get that job. And I got it. Mm-hmm. And it's not lost on me that I'm the only new member of the creative team that that did it in the Heights. Mm-hmm. And uh, I feel very, very lucky. And I also told Tommy in the interview, I will work so hard. Mm-hmm. You know, I will, you know, this is getting back to like, you know, the best part of, of doing the job is getting the job. Yeah, and then, then like, you have to oh, do God, it. No, that's do the worst, thing. exactly. Um, I just want to tell people I got it. But I, But I really feel like, you know... It was a vote of confidence. I think that Tommy assembles teams very thoughtfully. Hmm. And he thought, this feels right. I I don't know if he was like, hey, we're all young, scrappy, and hungry, um, like the characters in the show, 
or what he felt, but I think that he was not throwing me a bone. He was doing it because he felt like I could do this process. But you were well. not young, scrappy, and hungry at the time that Hamilton came your way. Many of these incredible non-theater jobs and artists and operas happened prior to you getting Hamilton. That's true. I mean, you know. I mean, I don't know where Kanye falls in. Kanye in, in was the long before Hamilton. Yeah. You so, know, uh, it's funny not you for say nothing. that. I, you know, I don't know. I should talk to my therapist about this, but mm-hmm. I, but the truth is, um, I still feel young, scrappy, and hungry mm-hmm. d- deeply. Um, and I remember saying to Tommy, you know, Andy, who I th- had won one Tony Award at that time you know, felt like he was unsatisfied with his work on Annie and like, you know, had he was we in had, a vulnerable we place. had had like crazy experiences putting a couple of shows up and I just felt like no recognition. We just keep like dragging our knuckles across the ground, like going to work, working really hard. I felt really young, really scrappy. And Even really though hungry. you had been making a living, a beautiful living as a designer in all sorts of ways for a long time. Yeah. Yeah. So it's the I mean, artist, it's the artist, artist vulnerability that kind of follows you wherever you go. Well, Do you feel differently now? Because I can't imagine there's not a room you walk into or an invitation you don't get that's sort of fancy and affirming. And I mean, you were nominated I, I for feel, a Tony. You won a zillion awards. Differently now. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't feel young. Um, I feel young enough. I'm 41. Mm -hmm. It's an interesting place to be. I am young enough to still be able to deliver cool. Are you guys all around the same age? Yeah. I think Andy might be the oldest. I think Andy's 45, Uh maybe 46. So we're all right there. I think Lynn is the youngest at 38. But culturally and and popular culture-wise, you're all the same generation. Yeah, yeah. We're fully peers. And and I I feel young enough to still be able to deliver cool things. Mm Mm-hmm. And I feel old enough to be have accomplished some stuff. So I don't get the kid treatment anymore. But I've always measured success of if you how long you continue to be the youngest person in the room. And um, oh, that's interesting. And I feel like at fifty, it, it it's hard to find a fifty year old who is truly often delivering cool, mm. only cool. Mm-hmm. And so at forty one, I feel solidly in the middle. But I still feel very young, scrappy, and hungry. And I think that is because I aspire to continue to push forward. Can you, you know, I've had a lot of friends uh, who were in Rent, which in yeah. some ways was kind of the, I don't know, predecessors, the right, right way to describe it. But the first time something took over uh, and and the word zeitgeist was used, right, of a yeah. moment in the theater that transcended what we understood theater could do yeah. and who would respond to it. And Daphne Rubin Vega was sitting in that chair and she was like, I'm going to misquote her, but it was so beautiful. It was something like, I am aware of the impact Rent has had around the world. And it is almost too much for me to comprehend. But so all I will say is thank you. I mean, listen, I... You're it's, like, it's thank interesting. You. Yeah. For, well, first of all, I, I like Daphne, I would say thank you to the whole wide world mm-hmm. and every single person. Um, I, I have to say the the thing about the Hamilton ride is, first of all, I know it's special and it is not lost on me. Not one second. It has dramatically changed my life and everyone who's worked on its lives and also everyone that bumps into it. 
I saw an interview once with um, George Harrison, and George, someone said to George Harrison, like, what's it like to be a Beatle? Mm-hmm. And he said, well, what's it like not to be a Beatle? And, you know, That's I'm not comparing reality. us but... to a Beatle, but I, Lynn's a Beatle, mm-hmm. you know, and um, the truth is I don't know another experience other than having been involved with Hamilton. And what I can tell you is it is um, profound and it has become a kind of national trust and I can't believe that I'm involved in it. And also, I really do know how the sausages got made, and I really do know how every set of brick of that got put together. And I remember when we were doing Motown, Barry Gordy said to me, you know, this vicious circle of fame and fortune, you know, most people don't round all the bases. You know, look at Michael Jackson, look at Whitney Houston, look at all these people who, like, get close and don't fully turn the corner. And he said, when people get famous and rich and powerful, they are allowed to become the person who they really are. So if you're a total mensch, you're more of a mensch yeah. and generous. And if you're a butthead, you become more of a butthead. And I got to say, it's been interesting because this group of people have governed themselves with grace and beauty. And I remember when we did the show and it became, you know, a thing. And then we went to Chicago and it was like insane in Chicago. We could go to a restaurant and, you know, 15 minutes later, someone was like huffing and puffing and running up to the table. And it was like the owner of the restaurant who had been called that the Hamilton creative team was there and like had driven in from Evanston. You know, it was like insane. And I got to say that everyone is a really good person, Mm -hmm. truly. And um, that's been the greatest part of it. The, what I'm most proud of, the creating of Hamilton, is it's a perfect collaboration. You really can't tell where Andy's choreography gives way to the set design mm-hmm. and where the set design and the direction give way to the choreography and the lighting design creates architecture and Paul Tapp. I mean, the work right. and the costumes is and, really yeah. – and it's – you know, and we worked really, really hard. That's a testament to – Tommy as the, I call him Lombardi, yeah. the, the theater Lombardi, yeah. you know, kind of that coach um, atmosphere for like a team that he puts together. Well, what is that? What, how? Give me an example. How does he do that? Well, some directors are incredible at casting. Some are incredible dramaturgs. Some are incredible um, visual auteurs. Some are, you know, Tommy's a combination of many of those things, but what he is the best at is creating a group of people who are all included and singular in their goal and vision. And you cannot have a design meeting with him in which he doesn't call you three minutes later or text you to check in or ideate on an idea. Or he just creates this atmosphere where he gives you the roadmap and here's where we're going to go and this is how we're going to do it. And he leads through like real inclusivity. And, you know, the truth is he's like the Lynn Whisperer. And he might not roll into a a design meeting with, okay, I was thinking about it all night and it needs to be this thing. And he might not look at the rendering or the models and say, here are my 45 notes. But what he does is arbitrate taste beautifully. And he puts people in a room who are incredibly high quality. And then he lets them do what they're really badass at doing. Uh And that's hard. So it's it's a beautiful collaboration. And then it's also a collaboration of people who we're all at the top of their game in that one moment. And that really came through. And, you know, it didn't hurt that every single person, whether it was a pop culture icon or a political icon right. or literati or intelligentsia or the regular person, 
all thought it was the greatest thing in the whole wide world. Yeah. And so, you know, phew, there it is. So how do you maintain this in – there's – how many tours are out right now? I think we have five companies. So it's the same set? Yeah. And you just make – you duplicate it? We and do. Replicate I mean, the, the touring one has some soft walls. I mean, the trick to the Hamilton touring proposition is that we all really like what we did. Mm-hmm. We're all really proud of what we did. And my goal is that if my mom saw it in another city, she would think it's the exact same set. Uh-huh. And so, and there's the, an orchid at the end, Jake, yeah, but exactly. it was so confusing. I love how you made my mom so Jewish <laughs> and so Brooklyn y. And, <laughs> and you she's nailed not it. one bit. She's she is Jewish and from Brooklyn, but she has a Massachusetts okay. accent. Don't even get me started. She, um, I I cannot do a Massachusetts accent to save my life. It's probably better for all of okay. us. Okay, um, but the but the that's the goal, and also because the set kind of stands for permanence, yeah. right? It's about building a foundation of a country in this kind of big. Yeah, um, that's tricky to engineer because it's got to like. Go in in eight hours. You know, yeah. I have to like close on a Sunday and open on a Tuesday. Do so, you use that little pop up one that we yeah, can exactly. buy? <laughs> you know what? We're going to put the pop up set on everyone's lap. Just enjoy. By the, the way, songs. that pop up one was my idea for uh, an opening night card, and uh, it took you know instead of four days to develop, it took four months to develop, and I only could afford to make one. Right. And I sent it to Jeffrey Seller, and he was like. He called me. He's like, what is this thing on my desk? It's beautiful. We should sell it. It's amazing. Well, that's why he's an amazing producer. I know. I was like, I, I okay. failed. Merry it's actually, Christmas. it's a fail. Yeah. I was like, I'll give it to you next year. Um, <laughs> oh, good. Someone else is going to make them now. Yeah. Perfect. But that, but that's actually the, the thing. Talk about integrity. I'm trying desperately not to say this is the, you know, other production of Hamilton, like the right. Broadway in quotation mark production of Hamilton, I'm trying to deliver, we are all trying to deliver the Broadway production of Hamilton. Right. And I think we have a responsibility to try and do that. So but putting the But it does have together, to fold up and go in a truck yeah, at the end of the day. Yep, yeah, it does. But, you know. You're doing it. Yeah, we're doing it. And anyone who sees it anywhere in the world is going to feel like they're seeing the real Hamilton. Yeah, and, and that is um, a testament top down. You know, we were like, we can't. Like, what are we going to do? Not do the turntable version? I'm right. sure, you know, eventually at the end of our run, we'll be like, you know, bus and trucking it with no turntable. But let's hope that doesn't happen. The for actors a can walk in a circle. It's true. Even if the stage That's is how not they moving. staged it before we ever got to the Now when we rehearse Hamilton, we do it on a turntable. We have it in the rehearsal space. Okay. But but they staged it literally with the idea of a turntable with no turntable. That was a big moment where we actually got Tommy and Andy and a couple of actors down to the public theater. And <laughs> Leslie was turn. like, whoa. No, well, there was that. And that makes for a couple of good videos. Check yes. out the Instagram account. We throw those up every once I in a will. while. But the truth is the moment, which is so fascinating, is Andy staged the show with Tommy in a cyclical way, thinking about the turntable. Right. And then we got, it was, I think it was January 3rd. There were no actors. Uh, we weren't yet set to come into the theater for another week or so. This is at the public. At the public. And we went down. It was like day or two after New Year's Eve, freezing cold. We turned on the turntables and we did the choreography and it looked terrible. Mm. I mean, it looked really not so good. And we had this moment where I was like, Andy, why don't you try every other person moving or just let the turntable do the work? And it wasn't until we allowed that kind of seamless collaboration to happen did we realize, oh, right. It still looks That's what we were thinking about. So then what was great is Tommy and Andy could go back into rehearsal and kind of reset it, thinking about the movement. Yeah. Neither of them had worked on a turntable before. It was, I mean, but that was like this moment and I've sort of compared it. It's like, 
I like gave them Lincoln logs and they bought built like a rocket ship. Right. I was like, I was expecting a log cabin. Yeah. They're like, oh, hang on a second. Let me show you what we can do with this. Wow. It's like, oh. You're like, I knew that all along. What's up, Rube Goldberg? Okay. Yeah, no, I got it. <laughs> well, David, it's very heady to sit down and and talk with someone who has the personality and warmth of someone I feel like I went to summer camp with. I know, totally. And the brain and vision of Da Vinci and Albert Einstein and Whoa. and Frank Lloyd Wright. So it's it's kind of an amazing thing to be in your presence. And I just want to thank you for your generosity on every level and for making things that um, my children, your children, and many generations to come are going to grow from. And it's really phenomenal. And um, I don't know. I, I just Let the record show back. that I'm under the desk again. He's under the desk. <laughs> yeah. Thank uh, you. This you're is, this is an, an honor to um, hang out and talk about this because uh, you're good people. And I feel like we did go to summer camp. But also, uh, I mean, I just love what I do. Yeah. You know, I really do. And I feel passionately about the people who I work with. And so it's cool to just hang out and talk about it. Well, I hope you'll come back and just tell me what's next. So in when the you go th- back to work right now, what are the like ten things on your desk that are waiting for you? Um, in the in the theater world, uh, I am um, doing Beetlejuice the musical, which is going to start in DC, and it's a, a you know it's based on the Tim Burton movie, and it's pretty. I mean, I never use this word to describe a show, but it's delicious. Uh-huh. It's really uh, so much phenomenal. Fun. Yeah. Um, and then in the non-theater world, uh, you know, I'm the creative director for the Hamilton exhibition, which is this 20s- Hamilton. The Hamilton. Um, hashtag Hamilton. Yes. Uh, the yeah the you know it's a 27,000 square foot fully immersive 360 degree you know habit trail experience through the life and times of Alexander Hamilton. Wow. Uh, you know, told with Lynn as your acoustic guide. So um, it's a huge project. It's like doing uh, 20 sets, fully um, immersive, and putting them all together in a jigsaw puzzle and then, you know, putting that in a building that we're going to build and then figuring out how to move that. So if we can't pull that off... I have an idea for you. I have a really good idea how to do it. I'll tell you after. Okay, good. Perfect. (laughs) I got this. Take that worry off your shoulders. (laughs) Thank you. A lot is here to save the day. (laughs) Yes. So, and and, you know, 44 other things. Okay. Well, good luck with all of them. Thank you. Thank you for being here, David. Thank you for having me. This is great. You're welcome. If you want more information about my guests, go to the website, littleknownfactspodcast.com. I also wanted to tell you that there is now a new addition to the website. It is a button that says contributions. This podcast is a true labor of love, and I really, really want to keep doing it for a long time. So if you like listening as much as I love to do it, please feel free to contribute. It would mean the world to me. Also, on Twitter, you can find me at Alana Levine. Instagram is Little Known Facts Podcast, and on Facebook, Little Known Facts Podcast. You can also feel free to rate and review the show on the iTunes show page. This podcast is recorded at Hangar Studios in New York City. This episode was brought to you by Pro Media. Located in Times Square, Pro Media offers both production and post production services out of its beautiful studios in the heart of New York City. 
ProMedia Sound Vision. Find out more at ProMedia.nyc. You've worked hard for what you have. Your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply.